Yes, as we come back, we should note that it uh, is indeed a birthday celebration going on in South Sudan, the latest nation in the world's family of nations. South Sudan becomes the world's 194th nation. And by the way, knocks Sudan out of its position in the world's top 10 largest countries. Russ Baker in his website, whowhatwhere.com, raises the question of why it is that the United States has gotten so behind South Sudan becoming an independent nation and speculates that it may have something to do with the fact that most of the oil from Sudan, the third largest producer in sub-Saharan Africa, is located in South Sudan. And if any of you caught the picture of the new president of South Sudan wearing the Stetson given to him by George W. Bush, well, you may join us at Radio Parallax in having just a bit of doubt about the world's newest nation's political leadership. One can hope that uh, South Sudan's being born as a new nation will bring its 50-year civil war to a close. We will, of course, continue to follow developments in Africa and would note that in other energy-related news, a surprising study of America's energy use notes that the little boxes that usher cable signals and digital recording capacity into televisions in our home have become the single largest electricity drain in many U.S. homes, with some typical home entertainment configurations eating more power than a new refrigerator or even some central air conditioning systems. There are about 160 million so-called set-top boxes in the U.S., one for every two people, and that number's rising. Currently, one high-definition DVR and one high-definition cable box uses an average of 440 kilowatt hours a year, about 10% more than a 21-cubic-foot energy-efficient refrigerator. These set-top boxes are energy hogs because uh, their drives, tuners, and other components are generally running full tilt, or nearly so, 24 hours a day, even when not in active use. We refer you to the web for more on this story by Elizabeth Rosenthal, originally published in the New York Times. It's curious to note that those in the industry are acting surprised by all this. Given that cable boxes are not designed to be turned completely off, well, they're just saying, well... uh, no one asked us to be able to turn them completely off. Of course, the biggest challenge in that would be uh, maintaining the rapid response time, which people now expect from their home entertainment systems. People are used to the idea that computers take some time to boot up, but they expect the TV to turn on instantly. Which does remind Radio Parallax of that excellent book, No Left Turns, by Joseph Schott, described as the funniest book ever written about the FBI describing how sometime in the early 60s, J. Edgar Hoover got the idea that he wanted his TV to turn on instantly, didn't want to have to wait for it to warm up. At the time, there was no such capacity in uh, commercial electronics, so the FBI lab fashioned a switch that would, in, in effect, keep the TV running all the time, but just wouldn't switch on the screen till Hoover wanted to use it. Which I guess does point out that in some ways, J. Edgar Hoover was a man ahead of his time, in addition to being a man often behind the times. Speaking of being ahead of and behind the times you're living in, apparently the more things change, the more they stay the same. Referring to an article in the Sacramento Bee on our local real estate market by Philip Reese and Robert Lewis, noting that uh, flippers are back. Buyers trying to snap up foreclosed homes at rock-bottom prices and turn them around quickly for a profit. 
The article quoted a real estate analyst as saying, there's a real estate ecosystem, and these investors play an important role in it. In nature, you need scavengers. Yes, and we've all seen what these scavengers and others have done in jacking up our real estate market recently and getting involved in all of the nonsense that took place in Wall Street and investment banks and commercial banks and blah, 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 in what was a bubble. One hopes the knuckleheads engaged in this current activity are not going to restart a bubble. Of course, given our current economy, there seems scarce danger of that. And by the way, we're waiting for someone to explain to us how it is the Sacramento Bee and Capital Public Radio have been collaborating on, uh, on discussions of how our economy is recovering here in the Sacramento area. There's an article just uh, last Sunday's Bee titled Faces of the Recovery with interviews by Foon Rhee, which does cause this correspondent to pause and um, have to wonder what it is they may be smoking over there at the Sacramento Bee especially in light of other articles about how hopes are dimming for job recovery, how we're seeing numerous uh, local closures of businesses that have been around for decades, how our uh, jobless rate looks bad. In fact, the article in the B shows all these people describing the, the terrible state of the economy as we still go on with the series about the faces of the recovery. And we just note that, uh, again, as the, as the owner of a local business, I, I look at this series and wonder... What are they talking about? And how about the article also from last Sunday's Sacramento Bee, from Pradnya Joshi from the New York Times, reprinted in, in, uh, in the Bee, about how um, those executive pay raises, well, they, they were really big, and apparently they're, again, getting bigger. article notes that a preliminary examination of executive pay last year, based on data available as of April 1st, found that paychecks for top executives in the U.S. were growing again after shrinking during the 2008-09 recession. In case you're keeping score, the final figures that they had show that the median pay for top executives in 200 big companies last year was $10.8 million, a 23% gain from the previous year. Of course, we'd note that in spite of all of these uh, shenanigans that went on in the economy, uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of prosecution going on. An article a few days back uh, by Gretchen Morganson and Louise Story noted that federal prosecutors have officially adopted new guidelines about charging corporations with crimes. This is a, a softer approach that longtime white-collar lawyers and former federal prosecutors say helps explain the dearth of criminal cases despite a raft of inquiries into the financial crisis. In fact, in the waning days of the Bush administration, the Justice Department uh, issued a directive which uh, involves a process known as deferred prosecutions, which signaled an important step away from more aggressive prosecutorial practices seen in some cases under their predecessors. Quoting from the article, it notes that the guidelines left open a possibility other than guilty or not guilty, giving leniency if companies investigated and reported their own wrongdoing In return, the government could enter into agreements to delay or cancel the prosecutions if the companies promised to change their behavior. The article on what must be the understatement of the month, but this approach, critics maintain, runs the risk of letting companies off too easily. Speaking of going after companies, uh, I don't know if you saw the film Client 9, Alex Gibney's documentary about Elliot Spitzer. It was on television last week on the Bio Channel. 
I, in fact, did not see it in its entirety, but I certainly intend to. Elliot Spitzer is a guy that saw what was going down as an attorney general and later governor and tried to step in to stop some of these sharp practices going on in Wall Street. He was certainly on the ball, as few were, and paid the price for it politically. I think this documentary ranks right up there with Inside Job as something that is uh, must-viewing for all of us, dear listener. Spitzer was quoting, uh, quoted as noting that uh, the law states that uh, executive compensation must be concomitant to their value to the firm. That, that's actually a principle of law. And when he saw guys doing uh, practices that manipulated stocks and, and were getting these huge uh, packages uh, that seemed to have no rational connection to their performance, he decided to treat it as a criminal matter, which I think it seems clear in retrospect, it was. We talked a few weeks back with uh, Dr. Douglas Perednia about his excellent book, Overhauling America's Healthcare Machine, which explains how uh, most of the problems we have in our healthcare system are related to the fact that it's too top heavy, too uh, administration driven. And right in this same mode of Elliot Spitzer and uh, what Dr. Perednia is talking about, we have this little story from uh, Central California. Apparently, the Salinas Valley Memorial Healthcare System recently awarded its retiring chief executive, Sam Dowling, a $150,000 annual pension, which is pretty good, but also apparently an additional $3.9 million in supplemental retirement benefits. That was awarded by the healthcare system's board. This reminds me of the Spitzer documentary where uh, Mr. Grasso at the New York Stock Exchange explained that his $147 million uh, uh, golden parachute retirement package was what the board thought he was worth, and, and by God, he agreed. Well, I, not surprisingly, Mr. Downing apparently was asked in this case if he thought he deserved the $3.9 million, and he thought it seemed good to him. L.A. Times got involved in this story and reported that uh, Downing's package was far more generous than those promised to administrators of several larger public hospitals. The L.A. Times tales like this one illustrate the challenge that public agencies face as they try to run big, costly programs effectively, whether hospitals or universities or prisons. They have to compete with the private sector to attract and keep talented administrators, and applicants may not be willing to take a much lower salary to work for the government. I like that phrase, talented administrators. I think that's like the phrase, the Loch Ness Monster. I've heard it used, I just haven't seen much evidence for their existence in reality. And speaking of bosses, The Economist ran a fascinating little blurb back on its May 7th issue asking, what do bosses do all day? They cited a Harvard Business School working paper, which was based on some research done on Italian firms where assistants were asked to record the activities of the boss for a week. Well, in Italy, anyway, the average boss works for about 48 hours a week and spends 60% of that time in meetings. The most diligent, it notes, put in another 20 hours. The study felt that the longer they worked, the better the company does. The article further noted that less diligent chief executives are more likely to have one-on-one meetings with people from outside the company, leading authors of the study to speculate that such people are trying to raise their own profile, perhaps to secure a better job elsewhere. But bosses who work longer hours spend more of those hours meeting their own employees. 
Arnold quoted a man from the London Business School noting that bosses often complain they get bogged down in day-to-day operations and the regulations that make them legally responsible for their underlings' wrongdoings are partly to blame, noting that the prospect of jail is a powerful attention grabber. They tried to assess along the way how much time a boss spends thinking about the future, and they came up with a number of 3 to 4% of their day. I want to backtrack a second, too, in this bit about hospitals and getting compensated in administration and blah, blah. Um, editorial. Sacramento Bee by C. Dwayne Downer, titled Hospitals Not Properly Reimbursed, does address this issue of this fantasy uh, economics that's being played with uh, Medicare and Medicaid, known in California as Medi-Cal. The writer was commenting upon a viewpoints commentary that asserted that hospital prices will drop if provider payments are regulated. Seems like pretty boneheaded thinking to this correspondent. Noted Mr. Donner, one of the biggest drivers of hospital prices stems from the chronic underfunding of the Medicare and Medi-Cal programs. In 2010, these two programs underpaid California hospitals by $8.4 billion. Statewide, Medi-Cal pays hospitals less than 78% of the cost of providing care to enrollees, let alone making any money off of the deal. Mr. Downer goes on, when government programs fail to pay the actual cost of caring for their beneficiaries, hospitals and other providers must shift these unreimbursed costs to private insurers. This cost shifting has existed for decades, but the magnitude is increasing as government payments continue to be cut due to state and federal budget deficits. This hidden fee costs every California family more than $1,200 per year in extra health care insurance premiums. Mr. Donner is the president and CEO of the California Hospital Association. Not a group we're all necessarily always in sync with, but he's certainly got a point on this issue. It actually reminds me of the old joke they used to have in the communist countries of, you know, as long as they pretend to pay us, we'll pretend to work. Doesn't fit exactly, but in this case, when you do these pretend payments of our healthcare system in America, there's going to be all sorts of distortions, and by God, there are. And uh, why it is we can't go ahead and get, uh, you know, universal health care is, well, there really isn't any good reason why we can't. Are there downsides to that proposal? Well, yeah, yeah, there are. But you've got to ask now, which is the lesser of evils? It's funny when, as a working physician, I see people from other countries and they talk about how, well, yes, grandma's here. And when she gets back to Romania, her health care problems will be fine. But as long as she's stuck here in America, we don't know what to do. I mean, you you hate to see America being compared unfavorably with Romania, don't you? By the way, to change the subject rather uh, radically, although, oddly enough, there's an article also written by Elizabeth Rosenthal at the New York Times. She must be a busy lady. About uh, something we mentioned a while back, people are proposing that the solution to lionfish, those tropical fish from the Indian Ocean which have been let loose in the Atlantic and have now established themselves... They're a small fish, but they're basically the top of the food chain because they're poisonous. The proposal's been made that people spear and eat them, and then we get rid of them that way. Well, <laughs> does anyone really think you can spear all of them and eat all of them and really get rid of all of them that way? Reading the article, you'd think so. Although it does quote scientists as emphasizing that human consumption is only part of what's needed to control invasive species and restore native fish populations. Of course, they note that if you do wet America's appetite for a certain type of fish, then it may actually expand 
its range as it, as it gets planted in various areas where you never saw it before. It's a topic we'll return to. Finally, to close the segment, we haven't said much on this radio program about uh, the Casey Anthony case in Florida. There's apparently been shock all over the nation as a woman who has appeared to be guilty has beat the rap. I would note in the wake of that, we've had articles by Robert Shapiro and uh, Alan Dershowitz explaining how this case shows that the system worked. Just like it worked, I guess, in the O.J. Simpson case, which they participated in. It shows actually that the system does not, in fact, appear to work so well. Unless you count, you know, letting guilty people off as working. But, you know, we're not going to get into that one today. In fact, let's, let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Stay tuned. We got more. Recalls a favorite dream 